A hallmark of quality improvement in healthcare is innovation. New ideas for better healthcare and health often start with a, what if we, and I'm sure many of you can then fill in the blank. For instance, what if we could guarantee communicating a test result to a patient in 24 to 48 hours? Or what if we focused on the root causes of violence in the community that contribute to so many patients with gunshot wounds landing in the ED? Or, as Maureen Bisignano mentioned in her keynote this past Monday at the International Summit on Improving Patient Care in the Office Practice and the Community, what if we started asking patients what matters to you instead of of what's the matter with you. There are all kinds of ways to act on fresh and bold ideas. The approach we're going to focus on today is called IHI's 90-Day Research and Development Process. What if you could create something similar? Well, we'll explore that too on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience, we hope, via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And if you're attending WIHI for the first time, we're really glad you're checking us out on this program. We lean into cutting-edge innovation and some new thinking. The notions and how to implement them aren't always fully formed yet, and we're always improving on that score anyway. But uh, a lot of things we talk about on WIHI benefit from some early scrutiny and discussion. So you might think of WIHI as a cousin Lindsay Martin, to the R&D process, and that's our topic today. So I'm going to now introduce our guests, and a lot of people are getting on. Maybe you're somewhere that's also having unseasonably warm weather, so you're just coming in from a long lunch. Um, it's uh, just a little after 2 p.m., and we welcome all of you to WIHI. We're going to be talking about R&D and innovation. So let me now introduce our guests, and a reminder that there are longer bios for each of them on the WIHI program page on IHI.org. On the phone in Ithaca, New York, is where we find Andrea Capsonell. She's in her home office, I believe. Andrea is a vice president at IHI. She's part of the R&D team. She's a leader of IHI's portfolio of programs to improve hospital performance, and Andrea is involved in much, much more. I'm sure it's a long list. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. It's really nice to be here today. Terrific. Okay. My thanks to Lindsay Martin, who's here in the studio with me. Lindsay is just an office pod away from me. And when I suddenly asked her one day, what about focusing on IHI's R&D process on WIHI? She said, well, sure, Madge. Lindsay is executive director of the 90-day process here at IHI. She's also an improvement advisor, and she, too, has a long list of projects. Always busy. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks so much, Madge. And a very special welcome to Dr. Bella Patel. Patel, joining us from Houston. Dr. Patel knows a thing or two about innovation and R&D based on some robust work at Memorial Hermann Hospital in Houston and the University of Texas Health Science Center there. Dr. Patel is the Assistant Dean of Healthcare Quality at U of T's Health Science Center and Assistant Chief Medical Officer at Memorial Hermann among her many simultaneous roles. Welcome, Dr. Patel. Thank you for having me. Terrific. And again, a warm welcome to our guests, to those of you joining. And if you're just getting on board, you got to the right place. It's WIHI, and we're going to be talking about R&D. So we're going to get underway. My first question is going to go to Andrea Capsonell, joining us from Ithaca. Why did IHI decide to create a very structured innovation R&D process when it did, apparently in 2006? 
And as you're um, telling us about that, I'm curious whether the rationale and motivation has changed over time. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Matt. Nice to talk with all of you today. Um, So it's a very good question of why we're working so hard on innovation. As you know, when IHI first started, uh, the strategy was to take well-proven, well-established ideas that weren't being used widely and making sure that everyone was using them. And we did that in all kinds of areas, from quality improvement methods to chronic illness care to asthma care, all kinds of things. Um, And as we did that, we learned that we could help places make very good improvements. However, we also learned that we couldn't get all the way to 100% or all the way to zero or all the way to perfect. And that um, some of the well-proven ideas were great, but they weren't great enough. And that we needed to do more design work. So we did idealized design work, oh, uh, 10 years ago on things like safety and uh, ideal office practice and much better intensive care unit um, services and outcomes. Um, and then we um, started a project called Pursuing Perfection that was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And again, we saw that if you just applied the existing knowledge, you could not get a healthcare organization to be excellent everywhere, that you could get a certain distance, but that there were really problems that needed new ideas. So we built a great deal of innovation into that program, and many of the things that people use today came from those initial idealized designs. And in 2006, when the Pursuing Perfection program officially ended, we realized that innovation was going to be more important than ever, that um, IHI's role of bringing the best ideas and making them easy to use and well-used was um, was only going to be served if we could find some new ideas to the old and persistent problems. So we built an R&D capability within the organization, and it's actually, I think, more important than ever now because as the population shifts, as the conditions that we're treating change, as the cost problems become more and more pressing, we're going to need some new ideas, and so that's what that's what the R&D work is like for us, and I know for other organizations around the world. Just a very quick follow-up question. When you uh, were coming up with this R&D process, did you, I'm going to get into more of this with Lindsay, but did you look to other industries, or did you look to other parts of healthcare even for this? Well, particularly other industries, we were very influenced by what's happened at uh, Procter & Gamble and how they uh, do their innovation work. And I know Lindsay's going to explain it more, but, you know, so many industries have dedicated R&D capability in their organizations. They devote a certain amount of their uh, revenues and, um, to making that go well. And, um, and in healthcare, that wasn't so common. But we realized that that was really critical for our mission. Mm-hmm. And so uh, ever since then, we've been drawing on other industries' approach to innovation. Okay, great. Andrea Capsino, um, Vice President at IHI. Okay, I'm going to turn to Lindsay Martin now. 
And um, Lindsay, I know, sometimes has a lot more time than I'm going to give her here today, but I, I know she can be very succinct about all this. So let's start off by describing the key components of the 90-day process. And again, kind of as you're describing that, I'm always curious, how, how come this is held up so well over time? So I think the first thing is probably pretty obvious. It's the time frame. We have 90 days um, from start to finish where we try to execute on a difficult problem in healthcare. And so what, um, if you're on the WebEx, what you're viewing right now is how we tend to break those 90 days out, or at least how we broke them out, I should say, when we started the process. We said we would spend 30 days scanning, and that's really a time-limiting factor. Once you get into an exciting problem, I feel like I personally could scan for forever. Yeah. But instead of doing that, we try to slow it down and say, you have 30 days um, to really determine if the angle you want to take on a project. And then we would say the next 30 days can be focused on visiting, testing, a kind of analysis and design building to start to get into the meat of the problem. Depending on what the problem you're working on might be, it actually might start to involve some real prototype testing as well. And then we always say it's nice to take 30 days to kind of validate what you're doing, come back from the learning of the tests, modify your concept design. And then at IHI, we always write a paper, um, even if it's just for internal use, that summarizes what we've learned, the key points, and keeps our information all in one place. Now, personally, I've never spent 30 days doing that because I get so wrapped up in the first two parts that I wind up frantically writing in the last week, and that seems to work for me. Um, but we want to be careful that we go through all three parts of the process. I think part of the reason it's held up over time is there's actually a small team of us that works on this. There are five of us uh, with dedicated time, not 100% of our time at all, and we're all on the same timeline. So every 90 days, there are five of us who are able to take on a new challenge, a new problem in healthcare. And by having that kind of peer commitment and camaraderie to ensure that we stay together on task, really focusing on the piece that should be innovative, and um, that allows us, I think, to push each other and work a bit harder um, or perhaps move to into an area that we didn't think of exploring in the first place. Go ahead. Oh, it, yep. another part that I think is pretty helpful is that this process at IHI kind of took what we were lacking, which was reliability, pace, and predictable output and put that into place. So now our new business team knows where we are in our cycle and is able to anticipate when something may or may not be coming out. So by taking innovation and putting it in a set time structure within the organization, we can plan the pieces that come around it a bit more. So if a project needs to get handed off or if we're thinking about new concept design, we can bring others in the organization into that process very early on, which helps to smooth some of the transitions in the handoff process. Okay, that's very, very good. And just so you know, um, if you're a regular WIHI listener, we use slides in um, kind of a, a slightly more Subtle way, we, we are providing them uh, as illustrations to what our guests are talking about. Uh, it's not necessarily a full, uh, you know, bore presentation here. You are welcome, though, to download the slides at the uh, conclusion of the program. You get a prompt when you log off WebEx, or if you're only joining by phone today, you can ask for the slides at info at ihi.org. So, Lindsay, let me ask you. I'm sure people are going to have a, a variety of um, questions about this. 
Um, but let's let's uh, just get into what have been some of the topics uh, that you've looked at over time, and maybe what have been some of the ones that have been especially noteworthy in terms of uh, how well they worked out. And John and I are gonna John's gonna flash a whole bunch of the topics from all the waves, just so people can kind of get an idea as you're speaking. Well, I think you'll see they run the gamut. Right. I mean, I think right. over the past six years, Andrea and I have worked on such a range of projects that it's hard to keep track. So prior to this methodology match, we had an innovation system in place. We had a group of individuals that met kind of monthly, quarterly to discuss new topics. And from those types of conversations, discussions, which really built into this process, we got some great innovations. The um, the concept of bundles, the IHI Global Trigger Tool. When we started to put this process a bit more into place, we started to see outcomes like uh, working to have best stroke care, it's something we'll talk about a bit further, what we call the waste reduction tool. We have spent a lot of time with the concept of the triple aim. It was a small project many, many years ago where we thought about what would a model look like for taking care of a population, and we came up with the concept of the triple aim, and that's obviously been taken forward in much more depth. We've looked at the business case for quality. We've looked at IHI's whole system measures. We've looked at processes for avoiding um, ED use. So the topics are all over. It's really based on what's IHI's strategy, what do we see as the big holes, and where can we contribute some new content. Two questions. Where do you get the ideas? The ideas come from everywhere. So there's a big board at IHI. Anyone who walks in the door is more than welcome to propose an idea for us to work on. There's no lack of ideas. So we look in the field. We look to we keep our ears open. We listen for things that might be new and exciting that we're not pursuing. We look to other industries that are experts in areas where healthcare is really lacking, and we try to take those ideas and merge them over. And we listen to partners who just tell us where the real pain in the system is, and we try to design to remove that pain. Okay, and. Can you give us a sense of what's what are you working on right now? We're slowly making our way in these slides to the present, but sure. even just some of the issues or general topics that are uh, kind of being poured over right now. Sure. One of the things that we're working on right now is, is it possible to pull savings out of the healthcare system? We know there's an incredible amount of waste. Can we reduce that waste, um, pull the actual savings out, and return it to the labor force that's paying for um, the care and insurance? I'm working on that right now. Um, I'll say Andrea is working on a really interesting project where she's looking to develop um, quality improvement methodology that really focuses on lay people, people who are not involved in healthcare at all, but could be great advocates in the healthcare system. All right, that sounds great. Terrific. Well, I hope you're thinking of some questions um, that you'll pose um, to Lindsay and Andrea both, and then to Dr. Patel, who I'm going to turn to in just a moment. One of the key things um, I've always found really interesting about the R&D uh, process, kind of being just a little bit arm's length away, is the prototyping, um, and perhaps we'll get into that a little bit more um, who's looked to to help prototype and test out certain things uh, so that they might really see the light of day. All right. Uh, thanks. You've just been listening uh, to Lindsay Martin. Andrea Capsinell is with us as well. And now we're going to turn to Dr. Bella Patel, who has some interesting, uh, a kind of an interesting example with one of the things that's come out of R&D as well as I think a culture that's uh, looking at innovation where uh, she works. So uh, Dr. Patel, welcome again. May I call you Bella? <laughs> 
Please. Okay, please. All right, Bella, well, go ahead. Tell us what, what you've been up to. Um, I know that uh, the waste reduction tool uh, is one of the things that you were able to grab a hold of. So maybe we'll start with that and the work in the ICU, and maybe um, we can talk about some of what else is going on in your systems. Sure. Um, well, let me set the platform a little bit, Our because our journey is a little bit of an interesting one. I'm fortunate enough to work at two institutions that really have embraced the continuous culture of quality improvement over the past five years. But initially, we didn't have a, a large platform. Memorial Hermann was driving its quality improvement through its leadership throughout the organization, but we really didn't have physician partners. And luckily, the UT system, at the same time, d- decided to develop a clinical safety and effectiveness program to really train key individuals to build QI knowledge at our institutions. So our evolution was is that as we, as we um, gained QI improvement knowledge, either through the course or through IHI, we really built our initial platform. And as a result, we've had pockets of excellence throughout the organization, and we actually learned how to sustain some of the improvements. But we really struggled with the rapid diffusion of knowledge. And over time, we really began to understand that we really didn't need to reinvent the wheel in every unit and every institution, especially with our limited resources and, most importantly, our time, that we really needed to test innovative practices that were uh, that were tried out elsewhere and brought in to really attain our targets in a narrower spectrum of time. So prototyping IHI's waste tool is one of our great examples of how Billing a, being a willing partner to incorporate new ideas rapidly can really help our processes. And it really started with our Friday afternoon brainstorming sessions when we're trying to figure out how to capture a snapshot of what's going on in our ICUs in real time to improve care throughout the ICUs, rather than at 30 days with our monthly reports or hallway conversations and so forth. And we were really envisioning a very inter- intricate electronic tracking board or other integrated healthcare systems, um, information systems, and we do, clearly didn't have the resources we needed, or it would take too long to develop it. We felt somewhat paralyzed. And in comes Kathy Luther, who had actually was their director of QI, who had been in contact with IHI's R&D team, and said, "Look at this waste tool. Maybe this is what you're looking for." And in an organization where you know we live in the ICUs with simple checklists, um, I was really first underwhelmed because the tool looks so simple, and you can see it on the web uh, WebEx. Um, and we weren't sure if this is really what we needed, but we decided to go ahead and modify, make a few modifications to identify the processes that we were that were important to us. We went into our ICUs the following day, and after one or two minor tweaks in the uh, following days, we started actually using the tool on a daily basis to identify things like over-sedation and adverse events and document each time a day is wasted as a result of one of these complications, whether it's delays to procedures, whether it's complications such as infections or end-of-life communication. And interestingly, this tool, it, um, once you are familiar with it in a day or so, it only takes 10 seconds to fill out per patient. And so it was very easily embedded into our physician workflow. And the data it gave us at a high level was very much exactly what we we're looking for. We were able to quickly identify communication delays, um, even though we had a significant multidisciplinary program put in place to improve communications. Uh, we knew we had to work harder on those processes. We were able to even identify physicians who had problems with timely communication, so we were able to send in more support. Um, we, we knew that we wasted many days waiting for tracheostomies, so by effectively focusing on that, we were able to reduce our trach times by 80%. 
um, we improved lots of different practices. And in fact, it actually even turned into a patient safety tool in that uh, we first noticed that our adverse events days were actually increasing um, in a particular week. And so we really couldn't, didn't understand why. We took a deep dive, noticed that we had introduced a new renal dialysis catheter, which had caused two significant bleeds in one week. And so we immediately removed the catheter. We um, retrained the physicians and reintroduced it a couple weeks later and resolved those complications. So a tool that took 10 seconds really helped to give us a quick snapshot of what we were looking for um, and improved our flow processes. So obviously the tool didn't improve outcomes, but it really helped us focus on the major issues that were contributing to increased utilization and safety in that particular unit. Because when we took a tool to another unit, the surgical unit, the issues were somewhat different. But clearly in that unit, we were able to focus on those important issues that were contributing to, to utilization. And really by addressing priority issues, whether it was communication, infections, procedure delays, and so forth, um, we had initially improved our length of stay in our MICU from 5.1 to 4.1 days by major QI projects. But by using this tool and focusing on the areas that we continue to have problems with, we're able to then decrease it to 3.3 days. So really over 1,000 days in one year, we're able to save by quickly filling out a tool every day that takes a couple of minutes and really by functionally adding two additional ICU beds. So really a great return on investment for a couple of minutes a day. So it was, it was a great tool um, in our daily practice. So that's, that's really uh, fascinating. It's a great journey. Um, before you uh, started prototyping, did you quite know what you were getting into? Did you know what it would mean to be a prototyper? Uh, no, well, we actually, because we were looking to integrate rapid ideas, we didn't really appreciate what, what it took to be a prototyper um, and the, um, the rigidity of the time process. We were usually into brainstorming and try, you know, right. doing rapid cycle improvements, but, um, but it was quite an important journey for us. Very, very interesting. I want to ask you one. Uh, thank you so much. That's Bella Patel you're listening to uh, from Memorial um, Hermann and a University of Texas Health Science Center in uh, Houston. A question that I have for you is to what extent, I think we talked about this in our planning call, is this whole 90-day or just the R&D and innovation culture taking hold in your system? Are there other kinds of things that you're working on? Uh, perhaps they may or may not need exactly the same discipline as the 90-day cycle, but I'm curious, are there other things underway right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I actually, we've um, as we've gone through these um, processes, our engagement of frontline staff continually to improve is, uh, improve quality has really our key, been our key to innovation. Um, for example, when we first started on VAP reduction protocols, we, it took us about a year to embed the processes to sustain the bundle compliance to over 95%. And when we reached that target, um, we actually didn't attain our zero, a goal of zero VAPs. So we continued to analyze it, and it was really a frontline staff who said, uh, let's look at these processes, let's look at where we failed, and it was our bedside nurses who noticed that when we were transporting patients that sometimes the patients aspirated because they noticed tube suctions, uh, feeds in the tube suctions. So we changed our transportation practices to decrease aspiration. It was our respiratory therapist who noted that our cuff practices were inconsistent, so we changed those to stabilize those uh, areas and limit aspiration. And it was my ICU fellows who said, you know, every time it takes us a long time to intubate a patient, uh, that patient's more likely to develop a VAP. So we really addressed all of those concerns. And as a result, by continuing to use the frontline staff to 
address and analyze these processes. We're able to get to zero of apps, and we've been able to maintain it for 57 months. Yeah, and I'm without looking. the best <laughs> engagement, it's an yeah, impressive, it's quite a, it's impressive slide. Quite a positive journey. Yes, and the downstream effect of a, a local success story is really that it primed the ICU staff to incorporate these processes. Um, each time in a much easier manner. It was easier to embed into workflows. It was easier to get buy-in. And with the frontline staff clearly engaged in the rapid cycle improvement process, initially it took us a year, then the next process took us 90 days, and now it takes us 30 days or even shorter for some of the simpler projects. So it's really been um, instrumental. And it's not only the nurses and the respiratory therapists and the physicians. Interestingly, some of my most valuable patient safety and QI information actually comes from medical students who historically have had little QI training, but now obviously they're well-connected with the IHI Open School. And this patient, uh, the, uh, the medical students actually don't have a vested interest in the status quo, and they're really observers, and they can identify with surprising clarity, you know, all our failures and processes, safety concerns, and communication issues. And it's really the, um, they who've been driving some of our innovation. When it came to hand washing, they said, why not put a sticker on the glove box to remind everyone to wash hands before and after they reach for the glove? And by doing that simple process, we're able to improve our compliance from 60 to 90% in four weeks. And um, and they drove some of our sickle cell management patients and so forth. And so it really takes the entire team and a culture of continued um, quality improvement and buy-in to really get the outcomes we want. And I think it also adds the concept of joy in the workplace. I think mm-hmm. being, being yeah. part of the team, being able to drive that change, I think that our, our uh, nursing satisfaction and our unit satisfaction has increased substantially. That's fabulous. Well, there's a lot of dimensions to what you're talking about here and very, very important. Uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to go to chat, so get ready. But I want to uh, just ask a couple of uh, follow-up questions. Thank you very much, Bella Patel. Dr. Bella Patel. Um, I want to ask, I'm going to just break from the, the format just for a moment. I want to ask Lindsay a very quick uh, question. We heard about some things that were innovations almost right then and there, sort of things that you could say, of course, why can't we do that? You know, the stickers or et cetera. So what you said, it's very important or a very frequent question you get is what's the difference between improvement and innovation? <laughs> and does it even matter? <laughs> I think the answer is no, actually. I don't okay. think it matters all that much. Yeah. Um, we get asked all all the time. I think what's important to realize is when people say innovation, they frequently think, what is the new latest breaking going to change the world innovation and can we come up with it? And then you hit Google and our image come up. <laughs> um, and the truth is you have to think about innovation at several levels. Is it innovative to your unit? Is it innovative to your system? Is it innovative across a dimension? And all of those are legitimate places where innovation needs to be taking place. Yes, for some organizations, it may cross over um, from improvement to innovation. But really, when we think about the difference, we're thinking about what's a difficult problem that needs to be solved. You're unaware of how to solve it and to make the change in your organization is going to be quite different. You'll need to put new systems in place um, to be innovative and, and try. And I think trying to necessarily distinguish all the time between innovation and improvement can be more frustrating because what you really want to see is improved outcomes regardless. Okay, thanks very much. That's important. And feel free to ask more questions about that when we open up the chat. Andrea, I want to just come back to you for a minute or two. So uh, not everything has been smooth sailing. Uh, um, You can't get engaged in innovation without some things maybe not panning out or maybe you go through a couple of cycles and they still don't pan out. Um, So I'm curious about sort of bumps along the way 
today and what you've learned about this uh, process over time uh, that's been very, very helpful. I mean, maybe things you, you, you don't have to repeat in the, quite the same way that might benefit others who are thinking about uh, creating this kind of process. Oh, I'd be happy to tell you about our bumps along the way. We're in a continuous learning process each wave. Each quarter is is a new bit of learning. I think the key things to keep in mind are um, that you uh, can't be too conservative if you really want to innovate. Um, some of the projects that you're going to take on are going to fail. We actually have been told by our advisory group that our failure rate's not high enough. So if you, if you yeah. try and make sure that every project turns into something, you're going to stay too safe and you're not going to get enough new ideas. Hmm. So that's one bump along the way. Yeah. Um, you're not doing research. You're not writing a term paper. You're actually looking for new ideas and figuring out how to apply them. And I do want to say, even though you didn't ask me, okay. that without people like Bella, who takes our ideas that we cook up in the office at IHI or in our offices someplace and get them out on the road, we won't learn anything. And so um, people that are willing to test like she is and others are our lifeblood. And um, so that's maybe another pitfall is don't just stay in a conference room, go places, visit things, build things, try things. Um, If it's all an academic exercise, you're not going to things are not going to go very well. Mm-hmm. The last thing is to never give up on your ideas. I've done quite a few cycles where I thought that I had some wonderful new ideas and there were no takers at the time. I think Lindsay's been in this place too. Mm-hmm. So when we decide at the end of a 90-day cycle if there's more to do, if we're done and we're ready to send something out for people to use, or if this isn't going to go anywhere and um, we can call it a failure if we want, but what we do is we put it on the shelf. And I've taken to saying, not yet. It's not, it's, the world's not ready yet for this. And many things, including our work on the business case, some work that I did on palliative care and cancer care, and many others, weren't, didn't have any uptake when we did them. We were, we just, it wasn't the right time. And now we're getting to use them again. Okay. So don't give up on the good ideas just because the world's not ready yet. That's a good uh, point. Very good. Lindsay also was going to uh, – sh- thank you, Andrea. Lindsay, Lindsay was going to share kind of what, what uh, the failure rate is that you are aiming for. We aim for about 25% failure rate. Okay. And it, you know it's funny. You never want to be the, the failed project. <laughs> right. um, but we've all taken turns doing it. And I think we all now feel pretty comfortable about – pushing hard and saying this isn't something not only is this not something we're going to put on the shelf this is something that went nowhere and we just need to say it's over and leave it alone mm-hmm. and that's okay terrific all right well this i hope we've set the table pretty nicely we royal we here Lindsay, bella and andrea for you and um john remind everybody uh how they can chat in questions and comments uh we also uh we welcome all uh your questions and comments for our guests and you're always welcome to you know respond and chat with one another as well uh and if you have examples and if any of you have kind of uh r&d processes at your organizations we're always 
always curious about that. And uh, let's uh, remind people, John. Yeah, uh, once again, I've just opened up the chat for everybody. There's the chat window uh, up on the WebEx screen. Um, you can now uh, talk with everybody, all the attendees, and make sure that when you are uh, talking to attendees and panelists that you make, uh, that you address it to all participants. And that way, Madge and I and Lindsay here in the studio and Andrea and Dr. Patel uh, can see what everybody's saying. Um, and remember, thanks if uh, you fill out the survey at the end and win a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Okay. All right. Well, go ahead, and uh, John will make sure that the chat is open. Open. Uh, people often love to um, chat to you specifically, John, so make sure to steer people uh, this way. I'm going to start off as people are maybe uh, typing away here. Um, I'm curious about the applicability, I think I can say that in mid-afternoon here without more coffee, of um, R&D um, across borders in terms of countries that what are we learning about that? And also um, across different areas of society. I know that there have been some interest here from people who are working in education, for example. So maybe let's, let's start about first talking about across borders. I think across across borders, um, we think about a fair bit. So when we're thinking innovation, we're not limiting ourselves at all to any country. We're looking everywhere for the best ideas that come up. Um, we do a fair bit of work in the UK. We're doing work. Um, we're actually starting to look a lot at the work we do in low and middle income countries and see what's the frontline work they're doing. Can we start to bring that back and apply it into programs we're working on? So I think the application is really, really broad. It doesn't. It's not focus just in any one area or just in the U.S. by any means. Mm -hmm. And perhaps even even more fun is starting to think across sectors. So we've always looked at other sectors for good ideas. We look at nuclear power. We look um, frequently in the military. We look at the airline industry from when we're thinking about safety. And now we're starting to have a lot of conversation with education organizations who are thinking about really similar problems um, that we seem to have in healthcare. There are a fair number of commonalities there. And so by talking across industries, we start to get really good examples of how specific um, issues are handled when you have a classroom of 20 children who are 10 years old and all learn differently and you have one person to take care of all of them. Well, how is that similar to having one physician who's trying to take care of panel of patients in a limited amount of time or thinking about group teaching? Things that we don't necessarily think about that we're starting to apply a lot more. So by testing our ideas and looking for ideas, within healthcare and out of healthcare within the US and across across many borders. I think it's enabled us to really open up and pursue forward and it helps, as Andrew said, to break some of those boundaries and it might push you a little bit more towards the failure rate, but that's the only way you're going to get the really new idea. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, you're listening to Lindsay Martin, and we're waiting uh, for your questions and comments. And I'm going to ask a question of all of you who are tuned in, who maybe haven't quite thought of what you want to say yet, or maybe you're busily typing away. What's an idea that you would love, um, you wish you could uh, explore further, that you'd love if you had the time and you were part of a 90-day process? Maybe you couldn't ex devote exclusive time to it, but you were part of a team. What's some 
something you've looked at in your own organization that you would love to see some innovation on and find out more about what's in the literature, what are other organizations doing, what are some best practices, and maybe get some uh, places to try it out. So um, please go ahead, type in any idea, just if, you know what, what's on the top of your head. Lindsay and Andrea often tell me that there are sometimes interesting hunches that people have. Um, people sketch things out on a napkin. and uh, <laughs> We have so many photocopies of napkins. It's really entertaining that we scan in. Madge, maybe I could just say one yeah, other thing that ahead. I've learned in this process. It's pretty much everybody wants to talk about what they're doing and what they're learning. And if it's a difficult problem, the progress that they're making or lack thereof, I am always surprised by the number of people. I'm, I'm a big phone call maker. Um, so I'll read enough to be able to make a phone call. And everyone that I call almost 100% of the time wants to talk about what they're working on and how we can improve it together and move forward. So I think thinking across um, you know, getting out of your office, getting out of the literature, starting to talk to people who might have an idea. I think oftentimes we're afraid to make that phone call, and that phone call opens so many doors. Okay, interesting. Uh, Andrea and uh, Bella, feel free to weigh in. Bella, I'm curious, are there some ideas uh, that are cooking around your mind or amongst your team uh, where where you are at Memorial Hermann or U of T, uh, some things you would love to be working on or hope to be working on soon? Well, you know, there's always hundreds of ideas that we, we feel like we need to work on. But one of the major areas we're focusing on is really transitions of care, whether it's from the ICU to the floor and the floor to home, um, that we really do an inadequate job of communicating with all the practitioners and making sure that the patients are provided adequate um, instruction and follow-up and so forth. And that's one of the things that I think that we really need to work on as an institution and even as a country, because um, I don't think we do that well anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Andrea, uh, thoughts at all about, um, you know, I don't know, do, do you hear things as you're moving about, about the types of things that people would love to see more innovation in? Hope not putting you on the spot. Just curious. Might be able to kind of get, get, get others' juices going. Yeah, you know, it's almost always about the problems that have been bedeviling us since forever. You know, how do we how do we get the nurses back to the bedside enough? How uh-huh. do we um, how do we actually make sure that people are safe when they leave a hospital or a healthcare organization? Um, it, there's just a large number of of uh, challenges that people face, and they think that innovation is a good idea. And incidentally. You know, we uh, at IHI have a dedicated capacity in a 90-day cycle, but people can innovate anywhere, anytime. We just were talking with Jennifer Phillips, who's um, the lead for their Center for Innovation at Virginia Mason Medical Center, and they teach people to, when they come across a problem on a daily basis, ask some questions like, well, how would we do this if we had this other constraint in front of us? Or... Um, you know, what are seven other ways to get this done, even if they're wacky? And um, that kind of activity is really worth it. And so I guess I wouldn't, wouldn't limit any of the listeners to a formal team and a major process. Mm-hmm. Um, you can always find ways to um, add innovation to the problem-solving that you do on a daily basis. 
Okay, thanks, Andrea. Lindsay, go ahead. Lindsay's seeing I'm, some I'm stuff. I'm looking at one of the chat questions, and I want to just follow up on what I had said. So there was an interesting point about differentiating between QI and innovation, um, and that it uh, this this organization says we operationalize quality improvement as a data-driven approach to improving an existing process, while innovation is more of a redesign of the core processes. Um, let me say that I couldn't agree with you more. When we know there's an approach that we're working on for quality improvement, we we follow an approach, and a lot of that is data-driven. When we're thinking about innovation, we take a slightly different route. My, my point is saying sometimes you start an innovation project or you start with a difficult question, which is really how we think about it, and you work through the process, and in the end you realize what you created wasn't truly innovation. It was improvement yeah. to the system. And so I think when you're working, you always want to question question where that's an innovative question and sometimes your answer winds up being more improvement than innovation and that's okay it doesn't always go in the direction of innovation but yes i couldn't agree more that when you specifically know there's an improvement approach you want to take you think about that and you staff that differently than you would in improve uh, an innovation process thanks a lot Lindsay. and uh okay i'm noticing a couple of interesting questions uh somebody is asking about the engagement or involvement of outside organizations in the process uh at what point are you kind of looking outside um, for, you know, various kinds of interviews and whatever. And is that a place, um, depending on what kind of interest you get, uh, what the result of your phone calls, that sort of stuff, where you might decide to drop something because you're not actually getting anywhere? Yeah, so I... I go outside right away. And when we're talking about organizations, we frequently say the first thing you want to do is you want to scan within your organization. So you want to look at other units, other places, other systems um, within your health structure that are doing perhaps different things. That's part of your scanning process. Part of your scanning process also has to be to get outside of your organization to see how others handle a problem. They may have a completely different approach. For us at IHI, we don't have a health system to directly go to. So we're constantly pushing ourselves to be outside and to get outside, as Andrea said, of of people that we know will answer the phone when we call. So to start pushing a bit further, but I think getting out is so helpful and beneficial. And sometimes you you have a few conversations and you start to hear the same things come up over and over again in slightly different ways, and I think then you know you're on to something. Mm-hmm. Are there any issues at all? I mean, certainly during the campaigns, we had a very robust uh, mentor network and a, a whole spirit and culture of all teach, all learn. That's very bread and butter to IHI and also was to the campaigns. For health systems as opposed to IHI calling upon others uh, as part of a scan and innovation, uh, any any tips for that or any, any areas where that can get a, a little hairy when you're trying to kind of almost cold call folks yeah. and learn about things. So it's always better to have a referral than a cold call. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the things we use other individuals at IHI who aren't necessarily involved in our process for. We'll do kind of a brain dump session. Does anyone have any ideas about this problem that I'm working on? And then we say that the general rule of participating in the session is if you have a recommendation, you need to make their introduction as well. The other thing I try to do is there's usually one or two individuals that can unlock the the door for you to anything, and then they will make those referrals over. So if you're able to... um, do some brief reading on the literature, you know, see if common names come up, make that phone call. People are fairly specialized, I think, and willing to then 
both tell you what they think and tell you who else they're excited to talk about and then connect you with those people. Okay, great. Dr. Patel, there's this a couple... Andrea. Oh, go ahead, Andrea. Jump right in. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. I was going to say an, another trick to making connections is to uh, use the web first, Google something, and that often opens the door because you'll actually be able to find on another organization's website the person that is most interested in X or Y. And um, and that that actually makes that cold call a little less chilly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Okay. Thank you, uh, uh, Bella. I thought of a question that might be helpful here. Somebody is asking, or maybe is expressing some concern that, particularly if maybe if you're at the health system level and you've gotten everybody involved in some R and D work uh, in innovation, and maybe things aren't quite working out, and maybe you're hitting that good 25% target failure rate. But in, in this case, maybe it's having a little problematic effect on morale uh, and people feel feel it more at, as a failure. Anything that you can offer us around that perspective? Well, you know, I think that when we prep um, new ideas going in or new trials of, of uh, protocols or bundles, we always preface it by, we're going to try this. It may fail, but when, we, when it fails, we really need your input to give us uh, ideas of what can work. So when we preface it by saying, this may not work, let's try it, we're more likely to engage the frontline staff in that communication. And so I feel that even when projects fail, because there's an expectation that they may fail, I think that really um, keeps the whole innovation and quality improvement momentum going, at least in our local ICUs. Okay, that's really, really good. Andrea, what about, um, I feel like you probably have some view of this, public systems, others uh, systems where there might be uh, more regulatory or legislative restrictions, anything there that people might need to be mindful of when you're trying to introduce and and, uh, do some R&D or be a prototyper, for example well there there are the usual things that one thinks about when you're in the midst of research um, privacy for patients and those kinds of things when you're working in innovation you need to be mindful of those and not do anything that you think is unsafe Um, but um, I think almost any place you can innovate even with those regulations and make it safe Um, I've heard the term um, mental benchmarking. So you might imagine how something would be and um, and talk with some people about it without using any actual patience. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, the secret we found to having an innovative culture is the leaders making it okay to be innovative and thoughtful and supporting it and rewarding it. Um, uh, you don't actually need a lot of resources. You need some. But if the leaders want the organization to be coming up with new solutions to old problems and is willing to put a little bit of resources in and a lot of credibility to it, um, I think almost any place can innovate. In fact, there are public systems that we work with, uh, public hospitals, who are very good at innovating. And um, even with scarce resources, in fact, they say because we have scarce resources, we have to be more innovative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really a, a clear perspective to me, too. It mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Um, 
Lindsay, I'm curious, uh, has it been challenging over time to find people willing or organizations willing to prototype certain things? And what makes a good prototyping uh, entity, really? It, it is. A, you know, it's hard for us, and I think it's we're completely dependent on the goodwill of others. So um, we just need to – IHI tries to be really – we try to be really helpful in any way we can. So if we find an organization that's willing to test – and I think this goes for frontline staff as well when you're trying to put a new idea out there and there are so many people that say, you know, I'm just maxed out. My plate is full. So we usually try to make prototyping as least intensive as possible. So if you're trying out a new idea for us, it's can you go and try this for, you know, on a really small scale with your next patient that you're transferring out if I'm working on transfers. Here's my idea. Can you do it? And then just give me a ring and let me know what hmm. it is. I'll take the information any way you want to give it to me. Okay. And you can test it any way you want. Um but can you do it soon and quickly so that I can get some feedback? And that's one way of being pretty unstructured about it. Sometimes we'll put out a big list to a group of individuals we're working on and say, we have an idea, we're starting to build it further. Does anyone want to try this with us? And I think as long as people know that it's not proven, we're not sure, we're definitely in a prototyping phase, we're, we're working out the kinks here, we're testing ideas, people are, are pretty willing to try. And I think the key really is being appreciative that it is it can be an extra um it usually does wind up being beneficial for everyone involved because we are all learning something but that the information you need to be able to take the information in any way people want to give it to you so that makes me uh, that relates then to a question here where somebody is asking how does this process differ from evidence-based practice process uh which is probably a big thing i mean you're not conducting um well i i shouldn't even try and answer that i'll ask you the expert the question here Uh, how would you distinguish it from other kinds of testing or other kinds of uh, research Frequently, we're we're really early on. So one, we would never want to do anything that was clinically not sound, and we're we're not talking about research in that way, really. Mm-hmm. Um, where you you would want a more standard, you know, randomized control um, trial to be working. But what we're trying to do is think about. Um, persistent problems and processes that need new approaches. So we want to think about the individual. We want to think about the evidence, certainly if it's out there. But what we're frequently doing is taking the evidence and then thinking about the implementation piece of it and how that might be different. So it's trying to think about that kind of um, we appreciate that the base exists. We want the expertise opinion in there, um, but we might not we're, we're not trying to touch that in any way, and we certainly always want the voice of the um, patient in the mix. And then think about the process that's involved in pulling it together um, and the staff involvement mm-hmm. and what that looks like, which is kind of the piece that's missing from the process. Okay, very good. Thank you. Dr. Patel, I'm curious, you mentioned that you were uh, turning some attention to uh, care transitions, and I'm curious, uh, are, are you hungry for um, R&D in, in this area, or do you feel, or Anne, do you feel that you have a lot to look to uh, that's going on out there now? Well, I know that um, there are organizations that are actively engaged in improving these transitions, and even on your chat line, there's one or two comments about organizations that are working on it. And clearly, we, we're hungry for knowledge because uh, we're in the beginnings of our processes of uh, discharge, to, uh, discharge home to patients. 
And I think that as every organization is working on it, it would be nice to accelerate the success stories. And I think that's what we're looking uh, to hear is from organizations that have been successful in, in certain areas so we can then accelerate our processes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, it's uh, people maybe uh, will pick up uh, some information even in the chat before uh, the hour is up. Uh, Andrea, I have a question for you. When you're evaluating, uh, so you've gone, you're at your 90 days and Lindsay's scrambling, uh, staying up late, working on her report. Um, you know, how do you, um, I don't know, I guess that process of deciding, you know, we, we got what we needed and we, we got the evidence uh, and we're, we're sort of ready to fly. Can, can you, do, uh, maybe both of you, but maybe I'll start with you, Andrea, describe what that process is like. Is it a very robust discussion in, when you all sit down and meet and is there debate about whether you really know enough to move forward? Well, sometimes there is debate. Um, the secret to being able to make that decision is to stay very close to the customer from the very beginning, and I probably should have mentioned that earlier. Whoever is asking for the innovation has some specific problem in mind. And when you're scanning, when you're coming up with a, a logic model or a, a list of the key drivers, if you keep checking back with them and saying, is this what you had in mind? Is this? It, it, will this be the kind of result that you want and and staying pretty true to their interests even if you're bringing them some very innovative approaches you'll know at the end if um if there's a a a demand for what you have or whether you got there there'll be a conversation where you go well you know here are all the best ideas and none of them seem feasible except under these rare circumstances and you know that's your conclusion we force ourselves to use the SBAR format um, mm-hmm. when we're reporting on what we're doing, which means that at every time we report, the A is for assessment of what's going on and R is for our recommendations. So we practice making recommendations throughout the 90-day cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the biggest problem is letting go of an idea that we think is really hunky-dory and uh, others don't see it as um, as feasible mm-hmm. and uh, and you try to avoid that situation right but you can't sometimes that's right and maybe uh, over over time <laughs> it will ripen in some other way there is a question here um, somebody's asking whether we have um, or are working um, now on any issues related to patient flow and reducing wait times uh, kind of perennial uh, things in need of improvement and innovation is is there anything on the docket now or recently Andrea or Lindsay um, you know, we have talked a lot about reducing, well, the waste identification tool that, that Bella used was all about reducing um, uh, unnecessary use to increase throughput. And I believe the people that are testing and using it are finding that they're, just as Bella did, maybe not quite so well, that they're reducing length of stay, and um, and that does actually improve flow and reduce waste. So the um, the URL for the white paper that was written on this with a lot of explanation was uh, put in the chat earlier. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's interested in that ought to go and uh, and visit it. And the other things that we've been working on have to do with unnecessary services, trying to clear out the system and, you know, and reduce the backlog for specialty care and making sure that the, the nurses and physicians and physical therapists and respiratory therapists and others are 
providing care that's needed and not providing care that's not needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've yeah. done a few projects on that, and I'm sure we'll do more in the future. Okay. Um, one last question before we really wrap up here. Somebody's asking about ethics boards and whether or not some of this work sometimes needs to run through. Andrea, can you speak to that? You know, it does need to go through IRB and ethics boards whenever we're going to be doing something brand new and experimental with patients and when we think that we're going to publish. In the first 90-day cycle, we're usually not in that spot. Okay. We're usually gathering information and visiting people and trying things that they feel safe on a very small scale. As we go on and see that we have some um, some leverage and we get more into prototype testing, I know there are places that have um, gone through their IRB process um, if they don't think the work is protected by the uh, state quality assurance laws. Okay. All right. That's helpful to know. Again, uh, Vicki has, uh, Vinden here has uh, provided the link to the uh, white paper, the waste uh, reduction tool. Um, I guess just a, a kind of last question, I'll also go back to you, Dr. Patel, but Lindsay, um, maybe you could tell people if folks have ideas that they wish the IHI R&D team uh, might pursue, um, wanted to really think a little bit more about how they might create a 90-day process in their own organization organizations or wanted to be thought of as an organization that could prototype some things, what's the best way uh, to make themselves known? Um, they could email me. Oh, my that goodness. That would be okay. fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you could always call um, IHI and ask for me. You could email me at lmartin at IHI. Org. Um, you can also, if you had new ideas, you could always send them to info at IHI.org, right, and, and they'll all be forwarded to the right place, and then we'll we'll get them um, and be able to get back to you. Okay, very, very good. All right. Well, um, Dr. Patel, I'm going to have you have the, the last word out there in uh, Houston. Um, this has been fascinating to hear about uh, the tremendous uh, gains that you've been able to make um, based on um, your use of the tools and sort of new things that are happening. What, what might we, if we were talking to you maybe six months or a year from now, what do you think we'd be asking you about uh, next? Well, probably about what's the next new innovation. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that one one of the fundamental things that we've learned is that in, in general when we try to implement new processes, everybody wants more FTEs and more staff support. But really by um, effectively and efficiently embedding these components into our daily normal workflow, you really can make substantial improvements in processes without adding a significant cost. And so a really thoughtful implementation can really do the trick most of the time. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons we've learned. All right. Well, fabulous. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bella Patel from Houston, joining us today. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, Thank you, Lindsay Martin. We're all, despite being in Ithaca, Boston area, and Houston, we're all pretty much having the same warm weather, and I don't know what what conclusion to draw from that. But I'm thrilled. Thank you all for uh, participating today. We hope you'll tell others about the program because you can find an archive uh, audio of today's program on IHI by tomorrow morning and also on iTunes. And uh, we're going to continue the conversation, if you'd like, on IHI's Facebook page. There's a little icon on the uh, bottom of the IHI.org homepage where you can find out how to be uh, part of IHI's Facebook uh, community. We hope you'll be. 
part of that. Next up on WIHI on April 5th, Going Going Green, special for this time of year, I suppose, embedding environmental health and sustainability into healthcare delivery. A very exciting initiative we're going to uh, hear about, the Healthy Hospitals Initiative, and uh, they've been building on this um, for about a decade. So we have a very, very interesting group coming up next week, and we hope you'll join, excuse me, two weeks from now, and we hope you'll check that out. Info is on our website right now. So again, by tomorrow morning, you can find a link to this program. You can find resources uh, that we've captured with Vicki's help uh, that can help you learn more. We do invite you. Here's John with that slide about win an Amazon gift card. Thank you so much for filling out the survey. Everyone who does fill out the survey that pops up when you log off the, the WebEx today um, is automatically entitled to be part of a raffle. And we're going to pick somebody's um, name out of the hat, as it were, uh, for an Amazon gift card because we really so much want your participation and we want to know how the program worked for you. Uh, any questions whatsoever, info at IHI.org. Feel free to suggest future show topics as well as innovation topics. The people who help make WIHI possible, they include Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and our Northeastern co-op, Rachel Yates. We have some nice music. We use that opens and closes the program. Original arrangements by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sapasoa. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.